Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. The social world is complex. And as teenagers, we rapidly develop the skills to understand what others are thinking and feeling. But have you ever stopped to think how these skills might actually be affecting how comfortable we feel in social situations? Today, we talk to Kate Warnell, an assistant professor of psychology at Texas State University. She discusses her research, which links social cognitions and social anxiety. How the way young people use their social cognition may be more important than the skills they have and what this means in terms of supporting those with high social anxiety. Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. Today we're going to talk about your work that looks at linking social anxiety and social cognition. But could you start us off just by telling a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this area? And I'm really happy to be with you today and able to talk about my work because I'm really passionate about the development of social cognition. So I started studying psychology way back as an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, um, studying social psychology. And I, you know, just that question of why do people differ and how they think about the world and how they think about other people. So I took that with me uh, after I graduated from college. I worked at the Yale Child Study Center for a couple years, working with autistic kids and thinking about all the varied ways that kids see the world. So neurotypical kids, um, neurodiverse kids, and then off to graduate school, University of Maryland, where I studied how the brain processes how we think about people. So pulling all of these pieces together and then my research lab here where I look at social cognition and how it applies to all different facets of our lives, especially thinking about uh, in kids and childhood. So this work that I'm going to chat with you about today that I'm so happy to be here talking about is a outgrowth of those of those interests. And social cognition, this area we're going to talk about more is about processing and applying information about people and social situations. And it's one of those areas that I think lay people are really interested in. Oh, yes. I mean, if you've ever eavesdropped on a conversation and wondered, you know, what's going on at the table next to me? Is it a first date? Is it a breakup? What's going on? Like that is your social cognition and action. So I think, you know, everyone um, can sort of relate to this idea of thinking about what other people are thinking about. Exactly. And Today, as I said, we're going to talk about the links between social anxiety and social cognition. So what did we know about the links between these areas? That's a great question, and it's a really complicated one. So intuitively, you think about social anxiety, so fear of social situations, and then social cognition, how we think about those situations, it seems as though there's probably some kind of relationship there. But what's been muddled is the direction of that relationship. So by direction, I mean 
Is it that more social anxiety is related to better social cognitive abilities? Or is it that more social anxiety is related to more difficulties with social cognition? Um, and there's been evidence on both sides. You know, on the one hand, you might think, oh, folks who have difficulty interpreting others' emotional states or social cues, and that might lead to some social difficulties and that might lead to some social anxiety. So that's kind of one path. But the other path says, maybe there's something about being hyper attuned or hyper focused on others thoughts and feelings where you're sort of perseverating or thinking about them quite a bit and that could maybe lead to some more heightened shyness self-consciousness anxiety the the research to date has sort of shown both things so there was a really cool recent paper out by researchers at Oxford so it looked across a bunch of studies spanning over 15,000 kids and adolescents and they found a small negative association. So by negative association, that would just mean more social anxiety linked to lower social cognition. Um, But then a really cool paper just came out, the University of Amsterdam, finding that in a sample of uh, kids like aged 8 to 12, both those with low social cognition and very high social cognition, both those groups seem at risk for social anxiety. For the kids with high theory of mind ability, so high social cognitive ability, It was specifically those who were very self-conscious that had that more anxiety. So it seemed like there was a combination of both that higher social cognition, but also that higher, maybe excessive self-consciousness, social awareness that could lead to some risk factors. Um, They specifically measured that self-consciousness via kids blushing. Um, And they found those kids who were blushing a lot and were really good at social cognition, those two things together, maybe you're sort of overly thinking about others, others' Mm -hmm. thoughts and feelings. You know, it's one of those questions, and I, you know, get this when I teach all the time, well, what's the simple, straightforward answer? And it seems as though right now we don't know that that it, you know, is a pretty complicated relationship between the two things. And I think that might be because social cognition is very complex. And you used the phrase there, theory of mind. And we're also going to talk about another term, mind-mindedness. So I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit more about both these ideas. So theory of mind and mind-mindedness are two components of social cognition. So if you think of it's a tree with many branches, sort of one branch of social cognition might be theory of mind, another branch mind-mindedness, and they both relate, right, to how we think and reason about other people. So theory of mind is the capacity to represent others' mental states, to understand that just because you know something doesn't mean everyone else knows it. The classic task of theory of mind that we use in preschoolers is called a false belief task. So you bring, you know, the four-year-old into the lab and you tell them a little story that Sarah put her crayons in the toy box and then she left the room. And while she's gone, David moved the crayons to a drawer. So, you know, Sarah put them in the box, she left the room. While she was gone, David moves them to a drawer. And you, you know, tell the story to the little child. And then you ask the child, when Sarah comes back, where will she look for her crayons? And that's part of the, the crucial question. So, you know, as an adult, you may say, well, of course, she's going to look in the toy box, right? She's not psychic. She has no way of knowing that David moved those things. But for young children, especially until about age four, they'll say, oh, she'll look in the drawer, And if you ask them why, they'll often say, well, that's where they are. So this idea that because that child knows where they are, surely everyone must know where they are. And then, of course, you know, as we get into middle childhood, adolescence, neurotypical folks are passing that task. But theory of mind gets more complicated. So if I say, hey, really great job. I said something different than I meant. So understanding those kinds of more subtle things that are happening in my head, complex intentions. So that sort of theory of mind is that 
capacity, ability to understand that other people, what their thoughts and feelings are that are different from your own. The other branch here, um, mind-mindedness, is this related concept about treating others as individuals with their own complex mental states. So it was first introduced in the context of parent-infant relationships. So Elizabeth Means and colleagues at um, Durham University had caregivers and infants come into the lab and they just said, you know, play together like you would at home. And they looked at how that caregiver, so for this example, we'll say the mother talked to the baby. And so, you know, if the baby was reaching for a ball, did the mom say, oh, you really want the ball, don't you? So want, that's a mental state, ascribing intention. Oh, you really like the rattle, don't you? And they would go through and say, how much was was the caregiver talking about the baby? Like they were this real full person with their thoughts and feelings. And were those comments appropriate, right? If the baby's saying, when you're giving them bananas and you go, oh, you love bananas, that would be sort of an inappropriate thing to do. So since then, the construct has grown, can now have it be assessed in adults about other adults. So if I asked you, you know, describe a close friend, I would look at when you talked about that close friend, did you say things like they're tall, they play soccer, or do you say things like, oh, they're very intelligent, they want to do X, thinking about why do you use those more mental state terms? I think a theory of mind is where will Sarah look for the ball? Think about mind-mindedness as, oh, you like the ball, don't you? Sort of those two different constructs. Mm. And you spoke there a little bit about how theory of mind and mind-mindedness develop over time. And your study looked at this middle childhood age. Why did you feel that was an important age to study? Yeah, so middle childhood is such a rich time to look at. Um, By middle childhood, we're saying about ages 7 to 12. And so this is a time right before sort of the median age of onset for social anxiety disorder. So that median age is usually right around 13. So if you think about risk factors, looking right before that clinical onset is potentially a really informative time, could be a really helpful time to see who are the kids who maybe have some risk factors, right? Some some things that maybe make them more likely to develop a social anxiety disorder. And it's also time that our social cognition is changing a ton. So if you think about, you know, the difference between being 12 and being seven. So in that range, right, you're starting to really branch out socially, socializing beyond the family in a lot more complex ways. Your friendships are getting a lot deeper, a lot more complicated. And we know that the social brain, so the regions of the brain that activate when we're doing theory of mind, when we're doing social interaction, those are changing. The connections between those regions are changing from seven to 12. All of this makes this middle childhood time a really fruitful opportunity to say what's happening in this age range, where are places that we could intervene. And so, as you said, it's a really complex area. So how do you go about exploring this in children, young people? Yes. So, you know, the other fun thing for me about working with kids 7 to 12 is they are great to interview and then have give responses to these questions. So I had a lot of fun with my students doing this work. So um, we had about 50 kids in that 7 to 12 range and 100 adults. So young adults. We also had 18 to 24-year-olds do this as well. But for the 7 to 12-year-olds, they came in and we had their parents fill out a social anxiety measure for them where they answered questions like, my child doesn't like to be with people they don't know well. And then we collected some data from kids. So in that mind-mindedness, we asked them to describe their best friends. 
pretty much all seven to 12 year olds, if you ask them if they have a best friend, they will say yes. And then you, you have a couple structured questions, you know, what kind of person are they? What do you like about them? What else do you want to tell me about them? And then you just let the kid talk to you. And it is a lot of fun. You get all kinds of different answers. I remember one girl, probably about 10 or 11, who um, I asked her if she, you know, had had a best friend. And she said, well, it is complicated. And then what ensued was a long saga about how there used to be three friends, but then there was a fight. And it was just like this, you know, very long, very detailed story about a lot of social dynamics. And then you'll have, you know, other kids who say, yeah, you know, they're cool. They play basketball with me, right? So you can you can have a, a wide variety of answers. And, and what we do is what's called code the data. It just means going through and looking for how much that child is using these mental state terms. So Um, things about their friend's emotional states, the friend's desires, wishes, goals, the friend's problem-solving abilities, if the friend's intelligent or not. I mean, that gives us a measure of that child's mind-mindedness. So how frequently they're thinking about their friend's thoughts, feelings, mental states. And then we do it again, asking them to talk about just a kid in their class they don't know as well. So obviously kids are going to say less about that person if you look at just raw number of words, but we're looking at sort of the proportion of those mental mind-minded sort of statements. And then after that was done, kids did a variety of sort of theory of mind tasks. So looking at pictures of people's eyes and saying, you know, what they were thinking or feeling, Um, listening to stories where someone committed a faux pas. So like two friends are in the bathroom at school and they're bad mouthing a third kid. And then the third kid comes out of the stall and sort of knowing that you're supposed to go, oh, and why you're supposed to feel that cringe response. Um, And then also some stories with things like white lies or double crossing and kind of figuring those out. So since we sort of had a measure for each kid of their social anxiety, their mind mindedness, both about their friend and about their classmate, and then their, their theory of mind. And so what did you find? Yeah, so I was thinking we would find relations with social anxiety, but as you know, we talked about the beginning of this podcast, it's hard to say which way they would be. So what we found is both in the kids, um, the 7, 12-year-olds, but also in the young adults, increased social anxiety was related to more mind-mindedness towards a close friend. So to put another way, those who were more socially anxious used more mental state words when talking about their close friends. And so that wasn't the case for the distant acquaintance. So we had, you know, children described a classmate, adults described an acquaintance, and it wasn't the acquaintance description that was related to anxiety. It was specifically that close relationship, something you're invested in, um, how much are you thinking about that person's thoughts and feelings. And what was interesting is we didn't find a relationship with those stories. So those theory of mind measures didn't relate to social anxiety. And so if we think about these maybe two paths to social anxiety, and there's probably more more than two, but two we're talking about here, this difficulty with mental states, you know, maybe you overinterpret things as negative, you have trouble figuring out what people are thinking and feeling, and then maybe another route of this extra attunement, maybe this heightened self-consciousness, this this over-focus on other people's thoughts and feelings, and so thinking about maybe it's not necessarily one's capacity or ability, but how we're using our social cognition in our day-to-day lives. And so if all we're doing is saying, oh, you know, this kid is really great on a multiple choice test about identifying sarcasm or, you know, identifying irony or identifying any of these things, then then maybe that's 
not always as good an insight is as how is it being used when your friend makes a remark to you that maybe is hurtful? How are we using these skills in our in our day-to-day life? And so it seemed like it was especially in the case of those close relationships that the mind-mindedness was really related to, to social anxiety. And I should say social anxiety traits, right? So these are all just Typical kids, no one has an anxiety disorder, but even in the general population, right, we vary on our on our level of social anxiety traits. So even if one doesn't have a clinical diagnosis, some folks are more socially anxious than others, even if it's not clinical anxiety. Um, and so that's kind of what we were looking at here. So it's really interesting. We could have all those skills, but it's more how the young person is going to apply them to the actual social situations in front of them that might dictate how much this is related to social anxiety. And whilst you were talking, I was also thinking about this idea of the ultra-empath, the person who might really be attuned to others and might even worry and fixate on how others are feeling or whether they've hurt others and how this might relate to your work. Yeah, so I I think you're right. And I think, you know, one crucial caveat here is that we didn't look at the accuracy of these judgments. So one potential thing that could be interesting is I'm talking a lot about your thoughts and feelings say so I'm rating as high mind mindedness but we didn't bring the best friend in to fact check that they you know their dream was to be a veterinarian so it's an interesting future direction and we're starting to work on this now is the accuracy of some of these judgments so if I'm very fixated on thoughts and feelings but I'm frequently getting the thoughts and feelings of my close friends wrong like maybe that's sort of the risk factor mm. or maybe it's that focus that comes from a really self-conscious place. So, you know, there are certainly sort of ultra empaths where it really is coming from, you know, a focus on on the other, but there's certainly a focus on the other that can come from a focus on oneself and how oneself is perceived by the other. You kind of hinted at that, right? Like you make a mistake and you're really focused on it the rest of the day and sort of beating yourself up about it and wondering if if the other person is thinking about it and the answer is usually they have stopped, but you're continuing to assume that they are. Um, and so, you know, I think future work should really look at, okay, you know, what is it about that high mind mindedness that we're finding is linked to anxiety? Is it high mind mindedness, but not accurate? Is it high mind mindedness coming from a place of self consciousness? What is it that's driving that? Because I certainly think in general, right, thinking about others' thoughts and feelings is certainly a social positive thing. And so I think what this work says is, is there a side of that, that can sometimes be a little a little less positive or a direction that can go in that can end up kind of getting you maybe stuck in that kind of rumination spiral that's that's not such a good thing. And we've spoken about the complexity of this, so I'm sure the answer to this is going to be it's very complex, but one of the things I was thinking about was the idea of theory of mind and autism and also high rates of social anxiety in autism and if what you found can help explain this at all. Yeah, no, I think that is is such a great question. Working with kids with autism really made me think about all the different paths of social development people take. And even within autism, kids differ so much from one another. Um, You have kids who are very verbal, very social, kids who are completely disinterested in the social world, just like you have variability in socialization and, and a more neurotypical population. So there's been some really interesting work looking at 
social anxiety and autism. So we know they co-occur frequently. So rates of social anxiety and autistic populations are higher than rates of social anxiety in the general population. And there's a really interesting question, right, as, as to why that is. What I hope my research speaks to and what, you know, I think an important message is, is there are many paths to that anxiety. So there's been some cool work looking at and kids as young as two. So kids with an autism diagnosis at age two already seem to sort of avoid looking at the eyes. And so the question is, right, is it avoidance or indifference, right? So is it that the eyes simply don't capture attention or is it the eyes can be anxiety provoking? And it seems at those young ages, it tends more to be sort of a disinterest in the eyes. The eyes just maybe aren't capturing attention the same way. But if you talk to autistic adults, oftentimes they'll tell you looking at the eyes is very anxiety provoking. So what's the developmental pathway, right, that's that's happening that maybe is causing something to go from being sort of an indifferent stimulus to a very anxiety provoking stimulus over time? What are the social experiences? What are maybe experiences of social exclusion or are feeling like a lack of social belonging or social understanding that can lead to that anxiety develop? So we do have some data from autistic adults and kind of late teens, so not quite the middle childhood period a little later, um, looking at mind-mindedness. So this is this is not published yet, so this is not even hot off the presses. But it doesn't, there don't seem to be huge differences in mind-mindedness between the autistic and neurotypical groups, but there are other differences in how they're talking about their relationships. So I think your your instinct is exactly right. It's not a clear story, oh, condition X means that you you don't have why, therefore, right, that there's a lot of complex interplay that's happening over someone's whole lived experience, and everyone's lived experience is a little mm. bit different. And I'm wondering what you think the implications are of this research about our understanding and how we can support those young people with high social anxiety. Yeah, so I think one thing that it speaks to is the importance of understanding close relationships. And so a lot of our work on social cognition, you know, is thinking about stories, storybook characters or looking at photographs of strangers. And even for a long time, a lot of the diagnostic criteria about social cognition, like specifically noted meeting unfamiliar people, and some of that's been been removed. But this idea that maybe what's happening in close relationships also matters a lot. So our findings were specific to close best friends, close relationship partners, not the more distant acquaintances. And so, you know, just because someone with more social anxiety still has a close network of friends, it doesn't mean that those friendships can't also be situations that are related to to some anxiety provocation. Um, And so really thinking about just because a kid has some of those close friends or just because a kid seems to be really in tune to other people's thoughts and feelings doesn't mean that that kid might not also have some anxiety, even if they're not talking about it. So that that high level of self-consciousness Yes, it means they're super socially attuned, but sometimes can lead to some of these higher anxiety traits. And so when we think about social skills interventions, rather than just, you know, pushing ability or capacity, thinking about how you're using that and when are some times where the kinds of thinking you're doing about others' thoughts and feelings are positive and when are some times where it's becoming a rumination or a perseveration that's maybe not so positive. And building on that, for the teachers and educators and those working with young people who are listening to this, what things can they take away to support those young people with with social anxiety? 
Yeah. So I think that is such an important question. So I think first is to, when you're kind of looking out at that, at that classroom, those kids who are very socially sensitive, maybe talking with them about the sort of things that make them feel self-conscious, make them feel embarrassed. So thinking back to the study we talked about at the very beginning about that blushing as can, can even be a risk factor, right? So kind of looking out for those, those kids and, and talking with them about, you know, what is it about that presentation in class that's making Making them, making them nervous or talking with them if they're kind of beating themselves up about things that have happened socially or they seem to be, you know, really fix, hyper-fixated on things that friends have said or done on, on the playground. So talking with even the kids that seem like they're socially very skilled because sometimes those social social skills can be used in ways, not always, of course, but can be used in ways that are maybe more ruminative or not adaptive. And then also, right, we're, we're talking here about some work finding these positive links with more anxiety and social cognition going together, but also teachers thinking about, you know, and all of us, um, practitioners, professors, everyone thinking about the other side too, that there's still a lot of work that kids who are missing social cues, that's also a risk pathway. So, you know, still working, especially in those earlier grades on emotion recognition, um, storybook reading. There's increasing research showing that storybook reading can help build empathy. Even in adults, there's some work showing that like adults who read more novels (laughs) have some higher theory of mind. So working on on those skills along the way too. So both working on those foundational empathy and theory of mind and social cognition skills and building that base, because we know that base is important. And then on the other end, that other pathway of that of that higher social anxiety and higher social cognition, you know, really listening to, to kids and talking with them about what's making them self-conscious, what's making them embarrassed, you know, trying to dispel some of the rumors that other people are thinking about you all of the time, right? That kind of personal fable that you start to see crop up, especially in early adolescence, that imaginary audience, with this idea that some of that self-consciousness isn't, isn't as warranted. And if there was one thing you wanted those listening to take away and remember about this conversation we've had about social cognition and social anxiety, what would that be? So I think the big takeaway is that there's lots of routes to social success and to social difficulties. And so just because a kid or a student is doing really well in one area or on one thing doesn't mean that there aren't also areas that are maybe risk factors and also vice versa, right? So a kid who has a lot of risk factors, that doesn't mean there aren't areas of strength too. And thinking about how all those work together in predicting and kids' outcomes, right? Because the goal is to make sure that all kids can have you know, happy, healthy, fulfilling lives, whatever that looks like for them. It's not the same number of friends for every kid. It's not the same number of minutes a day on social media for everybody. But to work with kids to to get to where they are there requires a lot of nuance and, and how we think about how all these thoughts and feelings relate to real world social behaviors. So coming full circle back around to it's complicated and we need to see in people as individuals. Yes, I know. I always feel like that's, that's the answer that my students are always, you know, dissatisfied by. They, they want to know, well, what's the one right thing or what's the one, what's the one right approach? What's the one therapy or intervention that works for X? It's more individualized and complicated than that. Kate, thank you so much for coming on and talking about it with such passion today. It was a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for listening. You can read more about Kate's work using links in the podcast description. And if you like this episode, then please do subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum and you can email us on theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.